Good morning. Open your scriptures to 1 John chapter 3. And the sermon title is a question. And the question is, do your actions pass the test of love? Do your actions pass the test of love? Uh, One effective teaching technique uh, is the use of contrasts and comparisons. Some of you are teachers. You know how effective that is. John actually does that in this letter where he, he contrasts and compares certain things, sometimes light and darkness, sometimes those who love the world from those who love the Father. We could do that. If I were to explain to you what a wise person is, I could go through the attributes of a wise person, but then also compare that with a foolish person. We could do that with big, small, fast, slow, hot, cold. That's what the Apostle John does in this little letter. And what he is doing is he is providing contrast so that you may know something. So that you may have the assurance that you have eternal life or not. That's what he's doing. He does this with obedience and disobedience. Those who say they have never sinned with those who confess their sin. Those who love the world with those who love the Father. He's doing this now in the present section in 1 John chapter 3 with those who are the children of the devil, very sharp term, with those who are children of God. This morning we'll see in our text that he compares and contrasts, he contrasts Cain with Jesus. It's a striking contrast. And it's supposed to have that effect on our hearts that it is, it is that kind of comparison that makes you have to wonder and evaluate yourself whether you are like Cain in your heart or whether you are like Jesus in your heart. 1 John 5.13, I want to keep going back to that through this entire series. Uh, This is John's clearly stated purpose. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. It is a letter to Christians that you may know that you have eternal life. The phrase that you may know means assurance. Assurance that you have eternal life. Wouldn't that be great this morning if you could know that? What if this morning, if standing at these double doors after we dismissed the sermon, uh, standing in the back was an angel, let's say Michael or Gabriel, or maybe one of those staggering creatures, one of the cherubim, right, standing in the back. And as each person passed by, they would either say, you're in or nope, not you. Right. And I know some of you, you'd be like slipping out through the fellowship hall. You don't even want to know. Right. You don't even want to know the truth. You're just going to slip out and just go to lunch. Um, Do you know that you can actually have that kind of certainty? That's the purpose of this letter. The purpose of this letter is so that you may know that you have eternal life, just as if a good angelic being looked at you and said, yes, you have eternal life. That's why God inspired John to write this letter. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Here's the sharp contrast we're going to continue with this morning. He says this, by this it is evident. Okay, it's clear, obvious, conspicuous. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And then he moves into these contrasts, hatred and love, murder, 
self-sacrifice, life, and death. John has already put forward three tests, and, and I want to review these because what he's going to do now in this section is he picks it back up and he's elaborating on those three tests. The first test of assurance was this. It is the moral test of obedience or we might say righteousness. Righteousness simply means meeting our obligations. So if Jesus commands something, we meet our obligation by obeying that. So it's the first test of moral, the moral test of obedience or righteousness. Back in chapter 2, verse 3, he says this. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Right? Very clear. Very clear evaluation. The second test is the relational test or the social test of love. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother. So there's a, there's a particular group here mentioned. Whoever loves other believers abides in the light. It's a very clear test. The third test of assurance was the doctrinal test. We saw this in chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. And that is the truth of whether you accept what Jesus says about himself or not. Is he the son of God who takes away the sin of the world or not? Because that's who he said he was. Then from chapter 2, verse 28 to 4, verse 6, John elaborates on those tests. Sean took two of those sections uh, one just before the holidays, one after the holidays, where John elaborates on the first test, that moral test of obedience in a very difficult passage last Sunday, where that test was then further explained. In this morning's text, chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, John is now elaborating on the second test, the test, the social test of love. Here's the big idea this morning. Those who truly belong to God will love and serve after the pattern of Jesus rather than the pattern of the world. That's how you can know whether you have eternal life or not. And that removes a lot of things off of our checklist. All these things that we want to matter don't. What, what matters now, John is saying, is those who truly belong to God, those who truly have eternal life, will love and serve after the pattern of Jesus rather than the pattern of the world. So verse 10 is like that, that door on a hinge that swings open. And now we're swinging into this section. So look at 1 John 3, verse 11. This is the second major section in John. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. From the time Jesus first taught this, gave his commands in John 13. This is the message from that beginning point of Christ's teaching that we should love one another. Now, the first major section was introduced with similar wording. If you look at 1 John 1, verse 5, he says, this is the message. He introduces it with the same sort of section headings that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So now he's moving from holiness, the moral test, to love, the relational social test. Now, to make that contrast, between love and hate in the section section in the second section, uh, he goes back to the first murderer in all of history. And I think at that point, you're supposed to be surprised. There's only one direct Old Testament reference in this entire letter. And it's right here as John is making this point. John will address the act of Cain murdering his brother Abel, but he will also provide the motive, which is very interesting. So here's the outline in the short time we have remaining. 
the hatred of Cain, the love of Jesus. That's the contrast. That's the teaching technique that John is putting forward. Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. That's the act. And why did he murder him? Here's the motive. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. We're familiar with the tragic story of Cain. He was the first human to be born. You think about that? Adam and Eve weren't born. They were both formed directly by God's hands. Adam from a small, moist lump of clay and Eve from Adam's rib. Cain is the first human to be a baby. He was the first one to grow up from an infant into a man. He grows up to commit fratricide. That's the killing of a brother or a sister. Only four chapters into the first book of the Bible and we're given an accurate picture of sin and it didn't take any time to degenerate into a heinous act of brutality. You have Cain killing his brother Abel. And what John is saying here is that Cain's actions revealed his true spiritual father. Look at verse 12. He says this. He was of the evil one. That sounds very similar to what Jesus taught when he looked the religious elites of Jerusalem in the eyes. And Jesus said this in John eight forty four, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And the mob that surrounded Jesus and the mob that crucified Christ had the same murderous heart of Cain. And so now you have these these two parallels going on side by side. This is what's shocking. Cain did not kill Abel because Abel was wicked or evil. Cain killed Abel because Abel was righteous. The very same reason people killed Jesus Christ. John Stott said this in his commentary. Jealousy lay behind his hatred. Not the jealousy which covets another's greater gifts, but that which resents another's greater righteousness. The envy which made the Jewish priests demand the death of Jesus. Jealousy, hatred, murder is a natural and terrible sequence. But it's not a one-off. This is not an anomaly. We would, we would find some comfort if Cain was sort of a stand-alone situation, but it's not. Notice, so notice what he says in verse 13. So don't be surprised. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. See, it's natural for the world to hate. Exampled by Cain in every generation afterward. It's their nature. It's their default settings. But, but here's the difference. If the gospel has truly entered your heart, if, if you have truly related to Jesus Christ as King and Savior in a redemptive way, and love is the heart of the gospel, then the evidence of your genuine saving faith is what? Is love. Christ-like love. As a matter of fact, he says this in verse 14. Look at it. This is, this is where he's moving all along. We know that we have passed out of death into life. This is what they call realm transfer. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life 
abiding in Him. So where the gospel has truly taken root, Christ-like love will be the fruit. And it's evident and conspicuous. So some of you, hopefully in your minds, you're like, well, how do you explain then the hate, the rejection that I've experienced within the church? Well, the simple truth is that those people, though dressed nice and memorizing scripture and attending every Sunday and giving to a worthy cause, have no assurance of salvation. That's what John would say. Their hate and their bitterness are from the realm of death, so they have no assurance that they have been transferred out of that realm into life. That's what verse 14 says. Whoever does not love abides in death. What John is saying is the attitude of hate in the heart is similar to murder in the heart. As a matter of fact, you can just hear John almost quoting Jesus out of Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then Jesus says this, but I say to you. And what he's doing now is he's capturing the essence and the spirit of that law all along. Where they just wanted it to be words and a checked box. Now what what Jesus says is this, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He's connecting heart anger with heart murder. Jesus says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So John says in verse 14, whoever does not love abides in death because it's natural to give into the primal urge to repay hate for hate and insult for insult and murder for murder. And you can see that disease, that toxic reaction all over social media. It is natural to do that. No wonder Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let's understand what John is and is not saying. Here's what he's not saying. He is not saying that you have eternal life because you love He's not saying that. That would be a works-based salvation. What he is saying is this, that a life characterized by love from what one commentator said, gospel gratitude provides evidence that you have been saved from the realm of death to the realm of life. So love is not the basis for our being forgiven. Christ's sacrifice alone is, but, but love provides the evidence of it. So the question again is, do your actions pass the test of love. It's interesting that the word brothers, not only did Jesus use that in Matthew chapter 5, but it's used 15 times in this letter. The illustration that John uses is taken from Cain and Abel, who were what? They were brothers. There was supposed to be a family love, a family unity. There was supposed to be something other than hate and murder. There was supposed to be a close bond. Yes, we are to love all people. That's taught in other places in Scripture. But here, what John has in view particularly is a love for other Christians, specifically a love for the church here, those who you share life with. If you, if you love 
unsaved, ungodly people more than you love other believers, you have no assurance of eternal life. Listen to what John says. I'll just read through these quickly. 1 John 2, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother, and you could say brother and sister, abides in the light. Chapter 3, verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Chapter 3, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Chapter 3, verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Chapter 3, verse 17, if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need. So don't be like Cain, who was a murderer and killed his own brother. Second big idea, and John doesn't take as much time on this. It's about a third of the space he just took. He shows us now the love of Christ. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, that He, Jesus, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Again, it's interesting, John shows an action and a motive. The motive is love. And some people have made the connection, the the interesting connection between John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. You can study that later. But but what is interesting is coming out from a motive of love, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the motive here then is out of love, he does what? He lays down his own life. So unlike Cain, whose motive was hateful envy that led to the death of a righteous person, Jesus' motive is love that led to his own death for unrighteous people. And love is the heart of the gospel. That's why it is a clear and effective test of whether you are a believer or not. John, who's writing this, learned love and experienced love from Jesus Christ himself. Let me read you a selection of verses, just key in. On the words, I'll try to read them slow enough for it to just be able to sink in. In 1 John 3.23, John says this. This is Jesus' commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Or this is God's commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And listen to what He attaches. And love one another just as He commanded us. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4, 11 to 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. 2 John 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, again referring back to the ministry and teaching of Jesus, that we love one another. Jesus said in John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus said in John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And again, in verse 17 of John 15, these things I command you, that you will love one another. The question is, do you know that kind of love and do you show that kind of love? Right? We're, inundated, we're inundated with love songs, romantic comedies, love stories, poetry about love, aisles full of greeting cards that express loving sentiments, Even William Shakespeare couldn't help but write one of his classics about love. 
where he says, my bounty is as boundless as the sea. My love is deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have for both are infinite. Or in that same classic, he says, don't waste your love on somebody who doesn't value it. Where he says, what's in a name that which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. How many of you have identified this, the classic by William Shakespeare? Uh, if you're still wondering, uh, the classic line, Oh, Fabio, Fabio, wherefore art thou? No, it's Romeo, Romeo, right? Uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet taken from Act 2, Scene 2, an entire series. But then I started thinking about Macbeth that has three witches and two generals and, and intrigue and murder. And I thought, well, that could also fit in to 1 John chapter 3 with Esau's uh, not Esau, with Cain's murdering of his brother. Culture has its own definition of love. But the love being described here in 1 John 3 is not isolated to feelings and passion or even just beautiful words. It expresses itself in action. Like Christ's love for us, verse 16, He laid down His life for us. That's the love that is in view and in focus. So how should we then love one another as highlands? Because we could keep it all into the theological realm and never bring it to precise application. Okay, what, what should it look like at highlands? We could simply say, look to the cross of Jesus Christ where he laid down his own life. But John actually moves forward in practical, tangible way. Look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need... It closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We will not be aware of others' needs if we simply surround ourselves with people who are well off and nicely dressed and financially secure and attractive. The question is does our life include those who are marginalized? or who are the social misfits, or who are oppressed. Do you have anyone like that in your life? Because one sure way to avoid having to show this kind of love is by avoiding people in need. And in this small group this morning, and the group that joins us by streaming, it is so much easier for us to say, why aren't my needs being met? than taking the same energy and saying, how can I help meet somebody else's need? Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, yet Jesus' entire life was filled with giving and serving others. Warren Wiersbe said, self-preservation is the first law of physical life, but self-sacrifice is the first law of spiritual life. James, Jesus' half-brother, caught on to the values of Jesus' ministry. And he said this in his letter, If a brother or sister, again, the love being talked about, first and foremost, are brothers and sisters in Christ. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we could nobly claim that we die for someone. But the real question is, would you give someone food or the shirt off your back? Or a coat or a month of rent 
or necessary medicine for sick children, would you interrupt your own comfort and convenience to help a brother or sister who is in need? As 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, see, he even includes the tangible gifts and even sacrificed my body, which is what Jesus taught. Ultimate sacrifice. I could boast about it. And see, people do love to boast about their giving and their faith and their helping and their service. And we give this much to missions. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Look at verse 18, the final verse of our text. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The final quote by Dan Aiken, who wrote a commentary on 1 John, he said this. The reason he ends with truth, that little word truth. Words can be empty and actions can be hypocritical. You may choose to do nothing, though your words promise much. On the other hand, you may do something for someone, but your motives are impure and your intentions evil. We call this manipulation. God cares about both our motives and our actions. He wants us to love and care for others just like we have been loved and cared for by Jesus. Love is the greatest evidence that says to others, I belong to Jesus. I follow Jesus. My life is identified with Jesus' life death, burial, and resurrection. And again, so no wonder Jesus provides the most unmistakable witness to the world is this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I'm going to invite our music team forward while they're getting in place to lead us in a final hymn of response. One more quote from John Stott, whose little commentary really is priceless on 1 John. He says this, Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. Love characterizes the church whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. So the question is, do you pass the test? There are no letter grades. There's simply a pass or a fail. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers.